genre. Welcome to the Jay and Silent Bob Minute. We're covering the movie Dogma, one minute at a time. Today we're covering Minute 115, quite possibly the greatest missed the spot minute ever. I'm Jeff Ferry. And I'm Luke Allen from uh, some podcast about Richard Curtis movies. Um, and uh, from the, I guess, aptly biblically named um, production company Ask, Seek, Knock. Oh, yes. As you can tell, we have upgraded. We have gotten rid of Chris. Chris was too uh, low class for us. We've moved up in the world. Um, so, yeah. So, thanks for being here. Um, we also needed somebody that knew anything about, uh, you know, anything to do with religion. Since judging off of Chris and I's Catholic knowledge from when we were 12 years old has only gotten us this far. <laughs> well, I'm um, Protestant, so it's a slight change of things but oh sorry think, we're gonna have to let you go, go. To, <laughs> we're living in the 80s um so yeah it's um i've said, said to you before we started recording i don't really know what i think of this film like i've watched it several times because i'm drawn to the whole like i don't get what i feel about this but i can appreciate it but do i like it I don't know, but I would also probably say it's still my favourite of the... I haven't seen all of Kevin Smith's films, but of his that I've seen, it's probably my favourite because I think it's such an outlier and it's fascinating. It's an interesting point in his career where he's he's gained some technical knowledge. He's a better filmmaker than he was when he started, but he's not completely Hollywood at this point and he's still got something to say. Yeah. So, like, this is him attempting... Like, if you listen to him at this point, he was, like, still very much into... Maybe not as much as Catholicism, but he was still very religious, as opposed to him now, where he's just like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know about all that. <laughs> like, that that's, that's interesting. Uh, and also, like after um, re-watching it uh, before coming on this show, I ended up also, because I was just fascinated um, about portrayals of, of religion and faith, that is something that I'm just really interested by. Um, and so I rewatched a documentary about Monty Python's Life of Brian after this because it just <laughs> kind of my, my brain was in that sort of zone. Um, but yeah, I also, as well as doing filmmaking, I work part time in a in a Christian book and media store, uh, and so I've kind of had many a conversation with people about Christian media and representations of faith and everything um, because I don't think we in the church are very good at media to be honest <laughs> i think christian movies are, are, are naff and so i'm looking i like looking at, at secular media and seeing how the church is portrayed and what the values and messages are well in, and this uh, is an interesting movie if you're trying to take yeah uh, yeah also, if you're listening <laughs> no, no, go, go ahead as you can see uh with our our slight distance we we sometimes crash into the atlantic ocean when we're trying to talk um it's interesting if you're trying to like, – this is one of those movies you can watch as a as a you know secular person or a Christian or whatever and be like, there's some good things to take out of this. There's a overall – there's a partially positive representation of religion. But on the other hand, one hand he's saying have faith and be good. And the other hand is showing you people like Cardinal Glick <laughs> that are out there <laughs> that like you know just up for, to their own good. Like, no, this is good for me. I don't care about the church. But I think that's that's one of the best portrayals of the church anyway, because I think um, often secular media likes to just portray the church as bad. 
as a whole. It's kind of it's an evil. It's an easy target to, to kind of point out. And often Christian media just likes to portray the church as good and everyone is perfect. And you know, if anyone's seen God's Not Dead, it's painful to watch just <laughs> unflawed characters. And so to actually kind of see something that yes, every filmmaker has their agenda, and it's always important to put a film within the context of that but to actually see something which feels like it presents both sides the positives of faith as well as the key kind of points but also some of the problems with organized religion um my my ruling tends to be which i think is why some of some of the elements of dogma i'm more uncertain on than others is take the mick out of christians and i'm i'm fine with that i'm like yeah we're stupid we're silly we're whatever it's great take the mick out of Christ or take the mick out of God and that's kind of where the line is for me normally um, but this this film opens you know some good questions and then you, you but then you still got to quantify what taking the mick is because I'd say stuff like you know Bruce Almighty and Evan Almighty um, you know Morgan Freeman's portrayal of God is comedic is that taking the mick is that offensive no so yeah well, I, don't, I don't know where the line is um, yeah. on, on things but well. because I don't know it's, it's why I find this film so fascinating. Well, then I'll ask you the question that has been brought up. So I have posited that there's three possible things that happened in this movie. There are three, you know, avenues you can choose depending on what you believe. There's the one that the film is basically presenting, which is that in the, in the beginning of the movie, God is trapped by Azrael's machinations. And for the whole movie is trapped. Um, Metatron taps the last scion through force of human will she's able to martyr herself you know god escapes you know god saves us at the very end track two is um god knows this is going to happen but allows it to happen anyway allows herself to be captured and put the humans basically and say well you have free will now see if you can make this work out and then the movie happens the third way is god knew everything that was going to happen from the beginning including getting captured and getting released. There was never a doubt in God's mind how this would go, but still allows it all to play out. I, I, I fully feel the third one. That is how I've always kind of watched it, which could be more just my insertion of, of the God that I know more than what the film's trying to tell me. But yeah, I've always kind of taken it as, as part of the, the plan all along. Um, and and the way the film was presented, I feel like you could take any of those. Absolutely. But I think I, what I quite like about the kind of structure of it and the storytelling is it very much feels like an Old Testament epic, an Old Testament story, you know, as much as you have, like, the stories of, of Moses and, and Joshua. And, and it, it feels similarly to that scale of you know, there's a message from God and someone's on a quest to do something and it, it's, it, it parallels with it so much and all of those, of course, biblical stories are parts, parts of God's great plan. And so I kind of interpreted this similarly, I think. Um, but I, I think the film is aware of its kind of conventions of these sort of traditional Old Testament stories to the degree, like even the, the scoring, especially in this scene, like it's very biblical epic. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I think it's, it's interesting to try and tell a story like that in a modern day context. And, and I think they make it very clear from the beginning, straight up to where we're at in the film now of you as a human, no, you, not only can you not understand 
what the angels are up to, <laughs> you certainly can't understand even what God could possibly is. Like, they make it very clear of, like, yeah, you're seeing a person, but, like, come on. You don't understand. Yeah, I, I, think, I think that's that, yeah. And I also quite, what, what genuinely stood out to me, and I think possibly is the point in which the film won me over, um, or at least I was like, right, I'm in on this, on this road, um, is the point in which, um, like, yeah, but why does God choose me? And it's like, well, Noah was drunk. And I, 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 that, those sorts of points I always find fascinating because the, the Sunday school version of Bible stories is look at all these great people that God gave tasks to. But the actual version of these Bible stories is look at all these flawed people who God gave tasks to. And it's, um, and I like that the film reflects it and clearly has knowledge of what it's trying to, to imitate and, and make points with. You know, it feels like, um, a proper, discussion of a film almost rather than a forced agenda oh yeah you change the you change the time frame by 2000 years and this fits right in mm. to like someone has a task you know they're tapped to do something there's literally a scene where she screams into the heavens why me mm. well, that's it i'd be interested i didn't look it up but i meant to do you know how this film was received by the church when it came out oh buried it hated it <laughs> I'd imagine, yeah. I mean, I think it is it is an immediate stop as soon as she works in an abortion clinic. That is an absolute – you lose – I mean, I don't know how it is everybody else. I know here in the United States, that is an immediate no-go. Like, you could stop talking right there. It doesn't matter what the rest of the film says. But it's the whole – you know, as, as I said, the whole point that Alan Rittman makes about all of the people that God has chosen before I think is a really kind of intelligent way of, of using that. And I feel like it doesn't um, contribute within itself to the abortion debate. Yeah, um, I feel like if he's not Kevin Smith, if if yeah, if he's not, yeah, I know we got we got a little a little we hit another wave over there. Um, if he's not Kevin Smith, if he's not, it, it might have actually helped him to not be a big time filmmaker because I feel like if this was going to be a a seventy five million dollar movie. Somebody steps in and goes, "Listen, she needs to not work at an abortion clinic. You know, she can work at something that's kind of, you know, against the church in some way. But could we, you know, maybe soften that hard edge up a little bit? That's a little much. You know, that's going to hurt us." She's the PA it, for the professor, and God's not dead. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. It's but I think I think that what makes the film so fascinating is it it somehow had the freedom to. To do all of this, and it does call me back to the the ideas of, of Life of Brian when that came or after we started recording, that I ended up um, because I'm so fascinated by this sort of the church's response to films and everything else. After rewatching this, I watched a documentary on Life of Brian, uh, which is a film similarly I've been fascinated by because there are elements within that that I I don't jokes I don't agree with, but the film as a whole is not in my mind set out to ridicule Christ but to ridicule the church and to make some sort of social commentary on the nature of the church and yet the backlash that that film received when it came out was i mean i i'd, I'd go as far as to say i don't think there's been anything like that before you know the, the pythons went off to america to premiere it and they were told to write their wills because they might get shot like that is the, <laughs> the, the the way in which that film was was received and since then i've spoken to members of the church some of them fairly high up within um the church about life of brian and most of them have now, the church has settled on, have seen it and have said, actually, no, I quite enjoy it. And I'm wondering whether the same could be said of, of Dogma, where there are loads of people fairly high up within the church who 
who see this as a tool rather than as um, you know opposition. Oh, because I-, I don't think anyone you know I, I I'd like to think that those high up in the church don't have faith so fragile that it would be affected by watching something like this. But similarly, um, uh, there was a quote. I was going to get all biblical. Find the exact quote. So um, just like edit this all out, and it'll sound lovely. Um, <laughs> it's from Corinthians. And it's, here we go. Similarly, ev- you know, as um, as Paul says in Corinthians, everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. So you know, it may not be a film that would hinder a Christian's faith, but is it a film that would help it? Uh, and you know, so there there are two sides. So I'd never go to someone in the church or go to the church and say every Christian should watch Dogma. But to some people individually in their relationship and within their faith, I think a film like this is helpful. Yeah, I also think there's there's several parts of this film that you could isolate and show to people, like the conversations Chris Rock has with Linda Fiorentino about be careful having beliefs as opposed to ideas, because if you get dug in. People. That's what he says. People die for those beliefs. Well, yeah, a lot of people have died over the years because they get dug in on something and now they won't back off. Yeah, no, I, 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 I get that, and it's 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 such an intelligent film that throws all these points not in a way that feels passive, but in a way that that feels fully like a conversation, and it it's just so fascinating. That, like, this is the guy who made Clerks and. More rats. Like it's well, you know, it, that's, it's so fascinating that this is what he decided to do. Yeah, it's it's only interesting if like if you watch his movies, you're like, how is he making this movie? But if you hear him interviewed, you're like, oh, okay, I get it. This guy is. I mean, Kevin is a smart guy. He's a little. He can be a little. You know, he's a little goofy now because now he lives in Hollywood. <laughs> and he he makes no bones about it. Like I I don't know what the real world's like anymore. You know, I've been in my own cocoon for twenty years. But like, he's a highly intelligent person. And as, he, as most of the great comedy writers are. Oh yeah, I mean, I mean, you brought up the Pythons right there. I yeah. mean, you're basically looking at a handful of geniuses that all just happen to hook up together. Yeah, absolutely. It's especially I don't know enough about the American comedy world, but most of the, the top like classic British comics are um, like came out of Oxford and like studied together in troops. You know, the Python team, the Not the Nine O'clock News team, um, and well that's like um a lot of the writing staffs for like snl the simpsons that's the same kind of group now they mix it up a little bit because you have to like the problem is you can you know there's nothing good with nothing wrong with a good fart joke now and again too no need to get too highbrow on us like you know well every- that's it it's not, i think i think it's you know they're all intelligent university to you know but i think um thankfully at least once again i don't know about the american comedy scene the british comedy scene is i think Allowing more working class comedians to work their way up. Um, well, yeah. I mean, and obviously just by how this place runs, it's always been a lot like that. We've always had tons, especially stand-up comics. Stand-up comics were always working class guys going, look at these guys over here. Like, look at them. But usually it's them pretending to be a little more, you know, you still got to have some level of education to be talking about that type well, of thing. Well, that's it. And, and that's where to... To some degree, I take an issue with, I have to take many, but with um, what Ricky Gervais has become now, is he is exactly the group that he is ridiculing <laughs> a lot of the time, um, is he was this big working class comic who now is a rich man and is pretending not to be a lot of the time. 
Sometimes he isn't. And my bigger issue for him, to be fair, is that his his latest stand-up sets are just like an hour of trans people exist. Am I right? Um, but it's it's um, the whole sort of class divide within comedy is something that I've only just become fully conscious of. But it's, it's sort of fascinating to me. Yeah, it, it's it's tough to do working class jokes when you're not working class anymore. I mean, some people can do it because some people feel genuine when they're doing it. But then other guys are like, Ugh. that's why like I, Kevin will talk about it on his podcast. He'll be like, he'll say like, I'm, I, I can't write clerks anymore. I'm not that guy. Like I, I wouldn't, he's like, I write about what I know. He's like, he's like the movie after this is Jane's on Bob strike back. He's like, you know why that movie's about the movies? Cause that's what I was doing. And yeah, that's what that I knew. <laughs> yeah. I've, I've always, you know, I always thought it was a really kind of basic thing. People said, you know, right. But, the few times I've done it have been the few times that the stuff I've written has, has been a lot more well-received. Um, you know, I've written I wrote a drama about a guy leaving prison, and it didn't go down very well. Probably because I've I've not really experienced that. I was observing it, like, uh, secondhand um, from people I spoke to and people... I then I wrote a, uh, a rom-com. This, this hasn't been, like, produced yet, but I wrote a rom-com set within the indie film world. And most people I've sent it to have said it's their favourite thing I've written. And it's like, probably because it's that's the world I know. At the time, I didn't properly realise that. And then there were certain elements of this character at the start of the film. What he'd become is... Um, oh, I'll just say, I'll loosely say the full thing. It's this guy who was, had these big ambitions and everyone was like, oh, he's going to be this great filmmaker. And then like he cut to about, I think, seven years later. And he just never got round to it. And he's just... He'd always called himself a filmmaker, but he never really made anything of himself. And I this was just a character I wrote. And then someone read the script and went, is this about who you're afraid you'll become? And I was like, I guess it is. And that's why it works, because it's personal. And so, yeah, it sounds obvious that writing personal stuff works, but it seems to be like a, a like a 100% guarantee at the moment that that will do better than stuff I make up. And yeah, and and Kevin made no bones about it that he was having a crisis of faith when he wrote this, and he had he had written at least the bones of this script before um, to specifically talk about this minute. This minute begins with um, all the carnage that was left over. I'll ask you this question: so all the carnage is left over from the previous minutes. There's dead bodies all over the place. You hear, you see God, aka Alanis Morissette. And she just smiles, and you hear like a little whooshing sound, and then everything is gone and fixed. What do you think all these people remember the next day? Like, I assume she just, re- you know, brings them all back to life. She didn't just kill them off screen. Yeah, I don't know. Um, it's it's quite interesting because I guess I'd assume I hadn't thought about the way. I guess I'd kind of assumed it was, but I don't know why. But then similarly, it just. Even though it kind of works in the context of this film, I, I don't like the big big red reset button. Just like, oh, and then all of the events of this film, eh, didn't happen again. And obviously the character stuff still has happened, but yeah. the the big scale, I kind of, I think part of me kind of wishes that that, that carnage still happened. And, yeah. and maybe even that the, the sacrifice um, that ends up being, you know, in a couple of minutes, is it? Yeah, I think maybe, it's maybe yeah later this week. I think she we we find out. Uh, I'm but not, I'm not sure how I feel about that either. It feels a little bit like oh, we need a happy ending. Yeah, and it's I, like I, I I'm kind of where you are on the other part of like I don't know what I've been if if she leaves the carnage there. Part of you is going to be like 
well, are you God or aren't you? <laughs> like, why can't you clean this up? But then you get into the situation, the question that everybody asks, why do bad things happen to good people? Why do people have to die? And this is when you just have to say, well, like, well, abs- oh, well she's God and you're not. I mean, I don't. <laughs> this is, um, you know, a parallel to an Old Testament style story. It doesn't just get better. Like, the, 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 the troubles carry on. And that we you will have troubles in this life. That is, you know, that is biblical. And so to just reset it, I don't know. It just it just feels it feels too Hollywood for something that's a biblical parallel. It feels a little bit like once again, don't know if this is the case, but a little bit like someone read Kevin Smith's original script and was like, the script editor was like, you need to change the ending. People aren't gonna like it. Well, you know, it 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 just yeah. And I said the two characters who are in essence the bad guys of this piece which is Azrael and Bartleby, get what they want at the end of this movie. They're both wiped out of existence, which is what they wanted. As true. Yeah, Azrael is killed by an instrument of God, is wiped out of existence, and Bartleby is killed by God, wiped out of existence. We're assuming there was no – there's no reset button for them. That's the final death is what I called it. Yeah, I hadn't properly thought about that because I guess that's another thing that doesn't drop in kind of – Well, that's what I said. I I had posited earlier that this is a New Testament story because God seems a little more lenient (laughs) through this than I have seen in previous incarnations of like, you know, people being laid to waste. If you look at it like this, by the end of this movie, if assume all the humans are reset and are back to where they need to be, Bartleby and Azrael are both um, wiped out, which is what they wanted. Um, we don't know the fate of Loki, really. I mean, we sort of do, but we don't. Um, Bethany, we're going to find out later. Spoiler alert for later in the week is going to be with Child. And Metatron here tells the other two, the Muse and the Apostle, that he'll work on their problems. If you look at it from God at 30,000 feet looking down view, everybody got what they wanted. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess, um, well, I think the ending is New Testament to what is an Old Testament story. Because the ending is is God on Earth and this kind of personal relationship the personal relationship that you know the the, the sacrifice of jesus and everything else led to the the biblically kind of the the closer personal forgiveness and sacrifice sacrificial god um of the of the new testament rather than but i don't know the, re- the rest of it still feels like a sort of exodus well the the beginning definitely but the quest itself feels like an old testament quest of like um, you've been tasked to do X, Y, and Z. Well, I don't want to. Well, tough. <laughs> You're doing it. <laughs> yeah. Um, our, Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, the ending The ending is obviously kind of very New Testament, because even with the whole, with with child spoilers. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that seems to hint at the concept of immaculate conception. Yeah, well, and I said, I had said to Chris earlier, I go, when the doors of the church open up, and Alanis Morissette walks out. I'd be, I'd be so like, whew, All right, New Testament God showed up. I'm, I'm okay. I, I feel like it'd be a different visage would come out if it was Old Testament God, and like you could just tell by one look on their face, like we're in trouble. <laughs> well, that's it. And even like some of their their own crises of faith throughout the journey, when it's why is God allowing this or complaining or anything else, it's it's David and, and his and his psalms and his kind of complaints as to you know why do you let these things happen? These sorts of biblical laments um so as a whole it feels old testament but the ending is is which i guess in in film theory that is our new equilibrium (laughs) we kind of started at the equilibrium of an old testament and and the new equilibrium is the is the new testament 
And we'll go to the the newest version of religion, comics, when uh, Kevin Smith is walking up with Bethany in his arms. It looks like the cover of A Death in the Family with Batman walking with Robin after he's – oh, spoiler alert for a 40-year-old comic book killed by the Joker. <laughs> yeah. It's also just so fascinating how they managed to – I say that, how, how Kevin Smith managed to fit so prominently Jay and Silent Bob into – a biblical epic kind of story. <laughs> Could you? I, I'm just trying to imagine being at the pitch meeting where he's like, "All right, you know, we're gonna have this very serious film about Catholicism. You know, I want to get serious actors in there. You got Ben Affleck, Matt Damon, Alan Rickman. Oh, also Jane Silent Bob are gonna be in it. You're like, whoa, wait, what? <laughs> Probably the same conversation about Chris Rock. Like, it's it's fascinating, but also it's just. Yeah, I guess fascinating is probably the the best way I can describe this film. It's just fascinating that it got made, fascinating the message it's trying to take, and fascinating how I can't figure out whether I like it or yeah. not. And I, 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 we'd spoken earlier of like the thing that's really amazing is there are scenes with Jason, mostly Jason Mewes, because he has to do the speaking, where he's with Linda Fiorentino or he's with Alan Rickman, and he's not getting blown off the screen. Like they're obviously the superior actors, but like you're not like who's this guy. I mean, yeah. he actually, but he stays in his lane. He's Jay. He never goes outside of that. But he, when the movie's over, not like, well, the movie was great, except for those two idiots. No, they were just part of the journey. They were your, you know, they were C-3PO and R2-D2. They were along for the journey. Well, that's it. And it, it's always fascinating when you have someone who is the writer and director of a film, in the case of, obviously, of, of Kevin Smith, and they put themselves into a film and it doesn't feel like an ego trip. Um, because that can happen so often is you kind of have these these filmmakers who I, I can probably be accused of it at times throw themselves in they clearly can't act as, as well enough as the rest of them and they're trying to make themselves look good you know I've I, I have got names that I will not name of many people I know within the film industry who weren't like that uh, it's well known or your, your feelings about Quentin Tarantino it's well known <laughs> well, okay well those are my feelings I'm, I'm sorry more more indie wise to be fair yeah. but I mean I've but then similarly you know I'm saying all of that I'm currently in pre-production for a sketch show in which me someone who has never really acted is in every single sketch alongside actual legendary British comic actors so like I can't really like yeah. <laughs> criticize that when that fully is I, I guess kind of a, a me Project. Well, you hope it's a um, is the situation that's here is that that when you step up, I was about to step up the bat to use a, you know a baseball euphemism, is you're able to rise to that occasion of just like you step up to where they're at instead of them you know having to come down to you. Uh, what's his name? Jack Nicholson used to talk about it when he would act with people. He said most when he was acting with people, he always felt like he was pulling them towards him, like basically like come on, be as good as me, be as good as me, and then. He said, somebody asked, Were you, did you ever feel like somebody was pulling you? And he's like, yeah, once. He's like, I was in a movie with Meryl Streep. <laughs> and she was pulling me to be like, no, you be as good as me. <laughs> you come over here. I, well, I, and I, I've seen that happen. I've worked on um, project. I've been very lucky. Once again, I won't directly name names because then people are going to try and figure out who the, who the people are I'm talking about that were less skilled. But I've been, I've been lucky enough on a series of projects to work with people who, to be fair, in the States, probably no one's heard of, but in, in the UK are like legendary British actors uh, for TV. And we've had people 
less prominent, less known actors who, when in a scene with them, you're like, I didn't know you were capable of that. <laughs> but they are by default upping their game because they're with these people that they look up to and that they admire and that they've grown up watching on TV. And so, yeah, I think it, it does happen. And similarly, when I write stuff for myself, I know my own limits. I don't write, a, a, you know, when I kind of write a character myself, the majority of cases, I know fairly early on into writing it, oh, this is going to be me. Okay. And so he's not going to suddenly have like a big dramatic monologue where he ends in tears and it's like this big like Oscar bait performance yeah. because I can't do that. But he's the funny shopkeeper who says a couple of silly things. Oh, because, yeah, like, I was going to say, or, for, I know I can do that. or maybe you make your character silent the whole movie. Yeah, <laughs> so that, you that, that also does, does work. Um, but we do see, I think it's, might, it might be next minute, but um, when is it the silent Bob turns he, up? There, there is, you know, Kevin Smith does a very good emotional performance. Yeah. In his oh, he's, he's good at he's, close he's got excellent face acting. All right. Well, we're going to get more Kevin on Wednesday. So I guess we'll wrap this up because we definitely want to talk more about Kevin. And don't worry, I'm sure Bethany's going to stay dead and just not suddenly resurrect this week. Yeah, oh, absolutely. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Why don't you uh, give some plugs? Um, well, uh, as of very recent, um, I will have launched my company, um, Us Seek Knock, which is biblically named, uh, actually, um, which is basically based around the idea that I um, started my my filmmaking through just asking people and getting favours from and so I wanted to acknowledge that as I kind of set myself up as more freelancer, so if anyone needs a producer, a production manager, or a screenwriter, they can go through there. Uh, or similarly, if you're based in England, uh, it's also a site, alcnog.co.uk, uh, where you can do a crew call um, because film Facebook groups are toxic um, and some of the crew call-out sites are an absolute fortune. And if you're starting out and you want some experienced people or some professionals or whatever standard you're after on your project, it can be really hard to, to find them. I've been lucky enough to have some, some very good contacts and people who have... Uh, who are very, very talented. And so whilst, of course, you can't guarantee anything, uh, if you fill out a form on the site uh, as to what you're filming, what crew you're after, what day you're looking for, then I can make sure that those necessary uh, crew or cast, potentially, um, are at least contacted and made aware of, of your project um, and uh, if they're interested in it. And that's uh, askseeknock.co.uk. All right, and if for some reason you're looking for us, obviously you can check us out on DuelingGenre.com with a host of other movies by minutes. Let's be honest, they're all better than ours, but, like, we try our best here. Um, check us out at Jane Silent Bob Quicker Stop, and whatever you do, keep an eye out for the Judean People's Front. Listen, I'm, I'm glad for the 10% of the audience that'll get that. <laughs>